Amen. Good morning, church. How are we feeling? Yeah? Not too bad? Enjoying the warmer weather? Yeah? Good. How many people are visiting from out of town today? Just throw a hand up. Good amount of you. Okay. Welcome. Good to have you here. If it's your first time visiting, like Anthony said, delighted to be with you. My name is Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are starting a new book today, in the book, or a new series in the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there? We also believe that the app on your phone, that counts. And so pull that out and you can scroll to Philippians chapter 1. If you want a hard copy and don't have one, just slip your hand up and we'll have someone of our ushers, I think, eh, if you want one, just raise your hand. I'm going to make Allie come up and do it. So anybody? Bible? No? You guys don't like the Word of God. Great. Okay. Um, no, you have phones. I get what's going on. Perfect. So listen, we're starting the book of Philippians. we got a lot to cover today. Um, I'm going to be honest with you on the front end. I moved houses this week. I had a ton of help from a lot of you. Thanks so much for that. The house is in shambles. I was in Colorado last weekend. I was in California yesterday for weddings. So we've been piecing this thing together 30 minutes at a time over the last two weeks. So if it's bad, that's, that's on me. If it's really good, that's on the Spirit. And so praise Jesus that will boast in my weakness this morning uh, and get started. So um, we're going to open up. If we can start and put up that map to begin with, I want to show you guys something here about Philippians uh, as we get started in the series. So if you're not familiar, and we're going to go through some of the key terms and key people in this series, uh, but Paul is at the center of this whole story. Paul, an apostle, Paul, uh, an evangelist, Paul, the missionary. And so he comes, and what you'll see here are the different missionary journeys that Paul went on throughout his life after getting saved in a miraculous event on the road to Damascus. And you'll notice that right here in the middle is the city Philippi. Okay? Hence, Philippians. This is where the church was started in Acts chapter 16 that we'll talk about. It was on that first journey. He comes through Philippi. He meets a woman named Lydia. They plant this church. It begins to grow. He visits again on his second journey. And then now he will write this letter while being imprisoned back to his friends and the church in Philippi, encouraging them in the gospel, encourage them in grace that they might stay faithful to the calling that they have been called to. Now, um, I could have given you a really smashing good intro, but we found some guys that we think do it way better than us, and so we're going to cue this video from the Bible Project on the book of Philippians to get our series started. So we get lights down, and we'll show that to you. Enjoy the next nine minutes of your life. Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church in Philippi was the first Jesus community Paul started in Eastern Europe, and that story is told in Acts chapter 16. Philippi was a Roman colony in ancient Macedonia. It was full of retired soldiers, and it was known for its patriotic nationalism. And so there Paul faced resistance when he was announcing Jesus as the true king of the world. And after Paul moved on from there, those who became followers of Jesus continued to suffer resistance and even persecution, but they remained a vibrant community faithful to the way of Jesus. Paul sent this letter from one of his many imprisonments, and for a very practical reason. The Philippians had sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, to take a financial gift to Paul to support him in prison. And Paul sent back this letter with Epaphroditus to say thank you and to do a whole lot more. 
The design of this letter doesn't develop one single idea from beginning to end like many of Paul's other letters. Rather, Paul has arranged a series of short, reflective essays or vignettes, and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. It artistically retells the story of the Messiah's incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection, and exaltation. And then in each of these vignettes, Paul will take up key words or ideas from that poem to show how living as a Christian means seeing your own story as a lived expression of Jesus' story. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad because for me, Paul says, life is the Messiah. And so dying would be a gain. For Paul, his life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. And notice how his train of thought works here. Dying for Jesus is not the true sacrifice for Paul. Rather, it's staying alive to serve others. And so that's Paul's way of participating in the story of Jesus, to suffer in order to love others more than himself. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example by taking up this same mindset. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution, but they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. It's rich with echoes of Old Testament texts, specifically the story of Adam and his rebellion in Genesis 1 through 3, and the poems about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. This poem is worth committing to memory. It is a beautifully condensed version of the gospel story. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He became a human. He became a servant to all. And even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the King of all, bestowing upon him the name that is above all names, so that all creation should recognize that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Now, that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. Paul's point here is very clear. In the crucified and risen Jesus, we discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is, and it does more. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus, because they are both examples of people living out Jesus' story. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, who the Philippians sent with their gift, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. But God had mercy on him and Paul by sparing him the loss of a friend. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus, and they are worthy of imitation. Paul then turns to his own story as an example. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, remember his letter to the Galatians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past. When he used to persecute Jesus' followers, when he tried to show his right standing before God by his zealous obedience to the laws of the Torah. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He now regards all of it as filth. And the word he uses is actually much less polite. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus, to participate in his suffering and sacrificial love. And he does all of it in the hope that Jesus' love will carry him through death and out the other side into resurrection. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven, which for Paul does not mean that we should all hope to get away from earth and go to heaven one day. Rather, heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. And he says we're eagerly awaiting our royal savior to come from there and return here to bring his kingdom of healing justice and transforming love to bring about a new creation. Paul then challenges the Philippians to keep living out the Jesus story. He first addresses two prominent women leaders in the church who worked alongside Paul, and they're in some kind of conflict. And so Paul pleads with them to follow Jesus' example of humility, to reconcile and become unified. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his his greatest teachers, showing him that no matter his circumstances, he has learned the secret of contentment, its simple dependence on the one who strengthens him. 
Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. The letter to the Philippians gives us a unique window into Paul's own heart and mind. He saw his entire life as a reenactment of the story of Jesus. And you can sense in this letter his close connection to Jesus, his awareness that Jesus' love and presence is closer than his own skin. And that's what gave him hope and humility in his darkest hours. And so Paul shows us that knowing Jesus is always a deeply personal, transforming encounter. That's the kind of Jesus that Paul invites others to follow. And that's what Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. All right, there you go. Now, I'm sure most of you have already scribbled that down somewhere else. Uh, but if you want to reference back to that, just surf up uh, Bible Project Philippians or any of the other stories, we highly encourage you to check out the work they're doing. We think it's, it's really, really good. So um, if you kind of see, that's the overarching, right? That's 35,000-foot view of where the text has taken us. We're going to spend the next three months kind of delving into, well, what does that mean for us as we hold up Jesus, right, and we use him as a mirror for ourselves, Okay, like this, this is the way his story unfolded. This is the type of person he is. Uh, where are we in the midst of that? Now, in order to really see this rightly, I truly believe we need to replace the lens with which we often view life. Because Philippians is one of the books that I guarantee you many of you know quotes from the book of Philippians. Well, the ones that he referenced towards the end, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And so this verse gets used all the time of like, you can achieve anything in life, anything you want, go and get it. That's a Western idea, right? That's not a Jesus idea. In fact, like what he talked about, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, has nothing to do with achievement and everything to do with contentment. As to say, no, I don't need to go farther. I'm good right here. But we view it as this achievement thing because while we've been kind of brought into that worldview of the way this life should work, and we've allowed Christianity, our faith, to be formed by the cultural story rather than the biblical story. And so in order to understand the book of Philippians, we have to take a step back and intentionally, every time we come to the text, replace that cultural lens with which we often view life in Scripture and say, no, no, no we're, we're going to put on this, this kingdom lens. We're going to say, no, no, let, let, let the Bible speak to us in culture. Let's not allow our culture to speak to it. That's kind of the idea as we get moving through this. And so as you can see these over and over and over, this need to unpack. We have one more graphic for you, Kitty. It's that other slide. Uh, it's, I don't know what it, it's like. Uh, it's, I don't know. It says something or other. Do you see that? That thing, it should say, quote-unquote, something or other. No, uh, it's like a, a bubble map. There are only three things that are in there, so the one that we haven't used yet. Um, what's that? It wasn't very good. I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> I only, it only took me hours. No, it's fine. Um, no, it's okay. It's not a big deal. So essentially, it's, you guys know those word maps where it's like it'll take a text or take an idea and it'll show, like the bigger the word is, the amount of times it shows up in a text. You guys ever seen one of those? Essentially, if I were to show it to you, picture this diamond, if like this whole part was Christ Jesus, okay? Like the biggest thing that you're going to get in the book of Philippians is Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. And Paul is trying to say, listen, in the midst of all of the voices that want to speak into your life and into my life, into the life of the church, the one voice we must and always listen to is that of Christ Jesus. 
And if we do so, it's going to cause us to rethink some of the things we think some of our texts are saying. Because maybe, just maybe, this life isn't about you getting more stuff. Maybe, just maybe, it's not about you working your way up the social ladder. Maybe instead, like we'll find in Philippians, it's actually about our death. It's actually about what Paul boasts in, which he says, I boast in my weakness. Like, we don't do that, right? Like, we live in a culture where with Instagram and social media, like, it's this whole idea of what do I put? I got to put, put forth the best foot forward so that what you think and what you see, that's what you get. No, Paul's saying, no, what I'm going to lay before you is all the pain, is all the mess, and is all the brokenness, because in the midst of that, Christ is glorified, and he makes us strong. Okay, that, that's the whole idea of the text, that's, that's where we're going. So let's start in verse 1 as we move through this, just to give some, some further intro. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from our God the Father, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Standard greeting from Paul, but there is actually a purpose to it. So Paul, you just learned about Timothy, you just learned about faithful follower. He took over the church in Ephesus, wrote First and Second Timothy, amazing guy. Uh, other terms, saints, if you're not familiar with that term, that's just the New Orleans football team. Uh, no, that just means followers of Jesus. So if you do come from a Catholic background where you have sainthood, uh, in kind of the Christian tradition, saints would be you guys, the most of you guys. I don't want to assume everyone in here is a follower of Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. And so Paul is saying to the Christians at the church in Philippi, we, we write this to you. Overseers and deacons. Overseer would be the same term as we call pastor, elder in the church today. And then deacons were a set of people that were set apart to serve orphans, widows, and the people who needed extra care within the church and outside the church. Okay, So those are all the terms. So Paul starts off every letter with this type of greeting, and none of us do that anymore, right? Like if you're going to send a friend an email, it's like, hey dude right? Or, or hey gal, right? Or whatever it is. It's just like, what's up? And then you write. Paul's doing something a little bit different here because he's trying to stamp authority on what he's about to say. He, he's saying like, listen, this, this is not just coming from random person over here. This is coming from Paul, whom you know, Timothy, whom you know, to you guys in the church for God's glory, like for, for Christ Jesus' glory. This is the purpose with which I'm writing. And the reason why I highlight this for just a moment is, again, we have to be cautious. Who are you and I listening to that gets to speak into your life? Who do you give authority to to say, yeah, you teach me about the way the world works? And I think far too often we just pull in from different places of people that have very little authority to be giving you information, okay? Because in our culture now, you can be the greatest theologian in the world, right? And I don't know where all you line up. I, I love a handful of, of people that are just in that space. I'm like, man, I, I revere them. I know they've studied. I get it. But for some reason, their opinions and their blogs are now thought of at the same level as Joe Blogs a lot that's on blogspot.com. And you read Joe Blogs a lot. And you're like, oh, but Joe Blogs a lot says this. Who's that guy? And, and that, like, seriously, though, like this, this Bible of ours, like it is a, hear me, because of the Spirit of God, all of us can approach it, know what it says for life and salvation. But it was written over the course of thousands of years. It was written 
by tons of different authors. It was written in different genres, in different contexts. It has words we don't know. It's been translated. This thing takes time to work through. And so when all of a sudden the voices you listen to are this guy over here who's just said, well, I don't like that. Forget the thousands of years of intentional biblical hermeneutics and study that have arrived at a place that tell us what it says. So again, I just start off by saying, listen, and, and maybe you're even wondering like, well, what business do, business do you have up there? I, I think there's some. I'm not sure that much, but we're doing our best. But we've studied and we've sat down and we've dug into the scriptures. And so Paul's coming to him and saying, listen, there's a lot of different gospels floating around Philippi right now. There's a lot of different good newses. There's a lot of different things that there are people competing for the affections of the people in Philippi. And he's saying, but it's my gospel, which is Christ's gospel, that we must listen to. And church, hear me, I don't know if there's just a better message for us as the church in America today that there is one gospel we must follow, and it is that of Christ Jesus. These other good news and good stories, and you should think this ways, if it's not here, it's not the way we go. If it's not centered on the work, life, person, personality of Jesus, leave it alone. And that, I mean, that's all over the spectrum. We got to return to this. And so again, we unpack. We're, we're introducing. So that's the idea. Now, let's keep going. Verse 3. Let's delve into his first encouragement and exhortation. Here's the thing. I want you guys to listen to this because it's easy when we get to the scriptures to try and listen. Okay, well, what does that verse mean? And break. I want you to just hear it as if you were a Philippian saint, right? Like you're just hanging out and you're just doing your thing. And then this letter shows up to instruct and encourage the church. It's all good, dude. Hey. <laughs> I went to Nate. Good job, Nate. Um, and I just want us to sit there, hear the next, we're going from 3 to 11, right? So then that's uh, eight, nine verses. Uh, and I want us to just read it, hear it, receive it, and then we're going to look at some observations at the end, right? It's nine, right? Someone, someone smile at me funny. Okay, here we go. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, not always in every prayer of mine, for you all, of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Yes, Lord. <laughs> That'd be great. He's like, hey, you read that wrong. Okay, um... <laughs> uh, I can do all things. He can do all things. Uh, okay, so this letter, he writes, he hadn't seen these people in three years. And so he's like, I'm going to write them this letter. And it's just dripping with affection, is it not? It's not just dripping with this like true embodied love for these people he hadn't seen in a while. But he, but he was part of this significant reality. I mean, I long for you. I, I pray for you every day. 
Like this is the depths to which, I mean, I just, I just, I wish we would think of each other that way. Like, like, like church, hear me, and some of you are visiting, so I don't care about you that much, but like the rest of us, I'm just kidding. No, for all of us, like we're the church. I long to be in communion with you people. But somehow it's like I, I've seen it. I've been, so we hang out in coffee shops a lot because that's, I mean, that's what pastors do Monday through Thursday. If you didn't know, we just drink coffee. So Except for Anthony. He drinks Diet Coke. But, um, and so uh, I'll sit there, and I will see people from our church. And I know you've, you know each other because you've been here for years. And you do like this dodge thing. And you're just like, oh, I don't know that person. Oh, my gosh. And then heaven forbid you would accidentally make eye contact. And it's the most awkward, cringeworthy part of my day. Because you still won't talk to one another. Friends, you better get used to this, right? Like, you're going to be doing this forever. (laughs) Literally. Why is it? Like, Paul, I long to be with you again. I long to pray for you. And I get it. Listen, not every, you can't be that type of depth with everyone. I understand that. But there should be this expectation in the church. There's this reality of like Christ's spirit-filled conviction and affection for one another. Now, I want to answer three questions. And the three questions I think are easy for us to ask in just this part of the greeting and salutation. Okay, uh, And so, so bear with me in the midst of this. But um, the three questions, why? Is he praying? Why is there joy? Okay, and what does he pray? So verse 5, I'm just going to ask you guys to respond here like we did with the, with the Love Walked Among Us series. But verse 5, why does it say that he prayed? Feel free to say it out. It's very obvious. Because of their partnership in the gospel, right? Okay, so Paul says, I pray for you every day. Whenever I pray... The Philippian church and the people in it, you guys are on my lips. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel. Not, oh man, you know what? Lydia made a really good bunk cake, right? Or not because, man, we just really enjoyed hanging out with each other. Not because, well, we shared the same hobbies. Not because, well, we had the same background. Why do I pray for you every single day? Because you and I, we labor in mission for the glory of God. I think honestly, the reason why there's not much affection in the church, in our church, and then across local expressions of the church, is we don't do mission very well. We're not all that united in mission. We don't go love people all that great. We're doing, listen, hear me, this is not a bash the church thing. It's a God's called us to more than even we're doing now. And if we move that direction, hear me, I think all of a sudden that affection stuff just begins to happen. Why? Because now JD and I are locked arm in arm on mission for the sake of God's glory, the sake of our joy, and the sake of the world's blessing. And, and so, so and that, hear me, that's not just here, that's outside these walls. The church here in the city of Flagstaff, statewide, globally. Why, why that affection? Because they're on mission together. Okay, next one. Why is there joy? Verse 7, answer that question for me. Verse 7, why is it okay for him to feel this? There it is, boom. Who said that? Whoever said it, extra blessing. Good job, Lexi. There you go. We're doling out crowns and jewels. Okay, so um, why does he have this affection and joy in his heart to pray and to be with them? 
because they're fellow partakers of grace. Now notice as he goes down, hear me, both in my imprisonment and in defense of confirmation of the gospel. In other words, in my I'm not doing it because I'm trapped behind a wall and in my I'm crushing it because I'm out here doing work. In other words, my affection for you is not based on your action but based on God's grace. You don't love your neighbor because they do good to you or they do the right thing. You love them because God levels humanity with his grace. That's why we love people. Paul understood that he himself was a broken sinner in need of grace. And so his affection for them is not because they were doing mission. He prayed for them every day because they did mission. Because he knew they were in work, so he prayed for them. The affection was born out of a deep belief that they too, just like him, needed the grace of God. So I wonder if maybe our affection, not just internally but across our churches, is off because we just don't really get or buy into grace all that much. Or maybe we buy into it for ourselves, but we don't want to extend it to others like Anthony spoke of in the book of Jonah. Like we're very pro-personal grace. We're not always great at extending grace to the one that we disagree with politically. We're not always good at, at, at extending grace to the one that we disagree with in this social issue or that social issue. And we're certainly not great when it directly comes against us or calls us out. But where is there room for that in this book? Grace levels us because we are all in desperate need for Jesus. That's why he has affection and joy. Might we do the same? Last one. What does he pray? Verse 9. It's going to be right there. There you go. Thank you. Good job, David. Right, that your charity, that your love would abound more and more, that they would grow in wisdom and discernment and be conformed to the image of Jesus. So listen, why does he pray? Okay, why? why, why? Because I mean, he longs, uh, sorry, so why does he pray their partnership in the gospel? Okay, uh, why the joy, their partnership in grace? But the words that come from his mouth when he prays for the church is that they would be more like Jesus and what would flow out from them would be love and charity. Like again, I just, just to step back for a moment and think through this whole greeting as Paul is speaking to the identity of the church. This is who you guys are. So this is why I pray that this is of utmost importance are these things. So that's why he prays it. Is that what we're constantly thinking through when we think about one another in this room and across our city. Gosh, I just so desperately, like when we pray for Peace Lutheran, it's not like this just like, Petty, well, I guess we should do this thing. It's literally, I hope that as Anthony prayed, the living God of the universe intervened in a supernatural way, the spirit of God raised up and the gospel was preached among the people. That as they mourned and celebrated the life of a lost pastor, that there'd be memory and celebration that would codify the people of God to be on mission in the world. Because none of this makes sense if the identity of the church is a fun Sunday morning. N none of this makes sense if the identity of the church is a self-help group. 
The only way we'll get Philippians is if we understand that the church is a gathering of God's people saved by grace for the sake of God's restorative mission in the world. That's why we do this. That, that's why we, we gather to learn and to go. Now, can there be fun and joy and all that stuff in the midst of I sure hope so. We had a dear friend, uh, I think she's here today, I won't call her out, but she said to Anthony and I once that there were some people that were debating whether or not to come to, to the church, and they visited, and they said, well, that we just weren't entertaining enough, right? And, uh, and, and I think Anthony and I looked at each other and high-fived. Like, we're like, we did it! Like, we, we've got to the place we want to be. And hear me, that, and that, that can even now sound like, well, look at how great we are. We're not entertaining. You can easily do that reverse false humility thing where you're really just boasting yourself anyway. I'm trying not to do that, but a little bit, Okay? But hear me, the reason why I bring that up is, listen, like, this has become entertainment. Hear me, like, like the world, listen, even as you read the blogs, okay, and then you read the news cycles about the church in America, the non-Christian community sees this as entertainment. They see it as something to pacify you, not expose you to the real story of the world that you might walk in freedom. They see it as something, come and be desensitized the same way as going to Harkins. Because we've given you a show. Friends, that's not the church. And so honestly, if that's on, that's probably a bit on us. It's on, it's on what we're preaching, what we're saying, the programs we're doing. We'll own what we need to own there. But hear me, the identity of us is not that. And again, if we want to hear Philippians rightly, if we want to be changed, then we have to begin to think in a different lens, okay? All right, last little bit here. Um, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's talking about his time in prison. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He's like, listen, like we heard in, in the Bible Project video, Paul's rejoicing in his imprisonment, he's rejoicing in his trial and his persecution because he knows that God's doing something greater in the midst of it. But he shares that, I think, in an intentional way to remind the Philippian church that this story has played itself out before in their very context. Acts chapter 16, I'll just read this to you. I don't think it'll be up. You don't have to flip there if you don't want. Acts 16, 25 through 34, Paul is in jail in Philippi. With, as he's starting this church, Paul gets put into prison. And then this is what happens, Acts 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You understand, if he had let the prisoners escape, the local magistrate would come and kill him himself. And so he thought, I'll just kill myself because this is going bad. Verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all still here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with the fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized as once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I mean, a phenomenal story. And I think what Paul's doing three years now removed is writing back to the Philippian church and be like, guys, this played itself out in your own backyard. Like, don't, don't be sad for me in chains. Don't be sad that I'm experiencing persecution. We saw this happen in Philippi. Silas and I got thrown into prison. And if, hear me, if you thought for a minute that Paul's exclamation that we'll see in the next week or two, that it's better for him to stay, right? That, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like if, you, if he's just saying that, well, he's stuck in prison, so it's easy for him to say crazy stuff. No, what happens in Philippi is an earthquake brought on by God, shakes the foundations, and him and Silas had the moment to escape, but they chose to stay because it was better for him to be in prison that he might preach the gospel to those who needed to hear. And so he reminds the Philippian church, don't forget the stories that God has written and, and done in your life. Don't forget about these moments. And so here's what you need to do, church. Here's what we need to do. If we're going to approach Philippians well, we're going to try and put on the new lens. It's trying to take that new lens and not just apply it to the present, but apply it to the past as well. To look at the moments in life and say like, man, Oh my gosh, God, God, you showed up there too. I didn't know it was you. I wasn't looking for you, but thank you for your grace. And just begin to revisit these times in life where it seemed like this is far from him potentially, but God was doing something greater than anything you knew possible. Because I think in that, we just begin to well up in thanksgiving. It's just like, a healthy thing to do for any married couple is to constantly think back on the moments in marriage that made you fall deeper in love with that person. Why? Because then your affection grows in the present. Look back with the lens of God, you're always in control. Lord, might my affection grow for you. Philippian church, don't forget what God has done. This is a good thing. In other words, don't be pulled away from what you know God has clearly said to the church. Don't be co-opted into this false peace or this false understanding of who we are. This is who we are. The elect chosen people of God that are called to go and bring others to him. Loving people, blessing people all along the way the same way Christ did. Okay. We land it now, verse 15. <clears throat> Some indeed preach Christ from envy or rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice. There's a handful, and just for time's sake, if you want to know more, we can dig in this together. Just for time's sake, we won't go too into depth of what's going on here, but there's a few different views of what this could be talking about. So Paul could be saying, hey, I'm in prison now, so there's this group of Christians that's out there, and they're trying to capitalize on the fact that I'm gone so they can get fame. 
Okay? There's another kind of thought that's in there. These are Jewish Christians that now that Paul is away, they can, can begin to represent their gospel that says that it's, uh, you need to become Jewish in the midst of it. You need to take on the Jewish traditions. And so hence afflict Paul in that way and step in and preach their own gospel. And then there's this last and third option that these are potentially non-Christians actually that are just talking about like Paul in a gossipy way. Hence, afflicting him in the midst of that. So they're not necessarily preaching Jesus. They're just talking about Jesus in a mocking way. Hence, afflicting Paul in his imprisonment. Now, I think all three can be valid. There's really three of the most, I think, talented, wise biblical scholars have three different views on this thing. Um, and so my, I think option one seems to be the most clear. I think based on verse 14, where he's talking about that brothers are preaching more boldly now, I think then 15, 16, 17 are an outworking of verse 14, if you guys are tracking with me. In other words, I think what's happening here is Paul is now in prison, and there's some other Christians that are getting caught up in the celebrity pastoral culture of A.D. 62. Okay. And we can know a handful of things about that today. Or all of a sudden, it's like, no, Christianity has been used as this rope to climb higher and higher in fandom within our world. And that's just, again, it's going to spit in the face of everything this book is going to tell us about the way the church and the Christian function. Okay. So Paul in prison, but what does he say in the midst of all that? Even when all this craziness is going out there, whatever, as long as Jesus is preached. Uh, hear me, like, what is, in other words, what is Paul's chief concern in life? That Jesus Christ is preached more than anything else. Like, and hear me, he rails on all three of those things in other parts, even in Philippians. He is going to go hard on humility throughout the book of Philippians. But even in the midst of that, he's like, all right, but if Jesus is preached, God will do something with that. So hear me, I think what he's just trying to say is like, church... What is the most important thing? Why do we exist? Glory to God by preaching Jesus to the world. That's why we do this. And that's the lens of which we'll allow the book of Philippians to shape us as a church for three months. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, we thank you for coming. Even that now we might uh, just even to our own hearts we just preach Jesus to ourselves. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came into this world and you gave up and you showed us what humility looked like. God, we thank you that you. Uh, pursued wisdom and, and stature and the scriptures and God, that you walked in faithfulness and, and somehow, Lord, you, in the midst of temptation, you still chose righteousness every time. God, we thank you that you were strong and that you loved people, especially those in the margins and the destitute and the ones that are just not easy to love. God, that you showed us that beautiful picture and God, remind us that this morning, God, we are those people that are difficult to love and yet you loved us. Lord, we thank you that you proved that to us on the cross when you gave your life for our own. 
God, we thank you then that you gave us the greatest gift in the world, which is new life and resurrection through your resurrection. So we preach the gospel to ourselves this morning that we might be changed. And it would be the one and only story with which we live by. God, then with that lens, Lord, would you transform us through this book, Lord? Would the text become more alive? Would people have a greater desire for their word and for their scriptures? And Holy Spirit, we're trusting you to do all this work because we can't do it ourselves. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.